So very much in relationship to the question which we just explored about how we can work to bring, as it were, our deeper priorities in life more to actually influence and have an impact on what we do, I was, I was also reflecting on a very related question of just of, um, in my own work with people in a meditative context, just how common it is for people to come and say, my practice doesn't feel what I'd like it to be, or I'm not living somehow fully enough according to my deeper values, or how can I work with my situation to have more of a sense of spiritual practice? I have a yearning for that, but somehow I feel stuck or limited or I don't know what to do. It's a very, very common question that arises, really, on how to deepen our practice or you know, whatever language we use for that, how to live more according to our deeper aspirations or how to live more with more love or wisdom or compassion or service or whatever ways we speak. It's very, very commonly asked, how can I uh, deepen my practice? Or how can I find ways to work with my situation in which I feel constrained or I seem to be going around sometimes in circles? Even though I may come on Wednesday mornings or even practice every day or go to retreats. It's how to, how to deepen further. Very real question, you know, because for most of us, I think there's a part of ourselves that has that kind of yearning, you know, and we can touch it and feel it at certain points. We can notice an aspiration. We can hear a talk and be stirred or have an experience and, and be stirred or feel a quality of peace and be moved and we can ask, how might I experience what I'm experiencing now more of the time? And, and then, then we um, go back to our house and we have to take care of 30 things and there are 67 emails and my to-do list seems to be expanding even though I don't, um, and I don't seem to be crossing much out of my, and so you know the situation and contemporary life is, can be busy um, and we can feel like our deeper aspirations are sometimes not given enough room or even getting uh, marginalized. And what we looked at last time and what I wanted to continue to look at today is one way, one very significant way of helping to deepen our practice. There are a lot of ways we can deepen our practice. Uh, sometimes it's simply by giving more time and space for formal meditation. It could be doing more retreats. There, there is some wisdom in increasing the quantity of practice. That is sometimes what's called for. Maybe more formal practice during the day, more retreats and so forth. Sometimes doing something like a Sabbath once a week. Just giving more time and energy is one way to deepen practice. Um, and uh, and yet, not necessarily uh, going to be what everyone needs, and quantity only goes so far. Quality is also important. We can also, if we have, uh, we can't increase the quantity, we can look to um, uh, have higher quality in what we do. It's very significant. Can I use my actual time that I have for formal practice more wisely? Or even more significantly, perhaps, can I? extend that spirit of practice to the flow of my everyday life, which doesn't take, in a sense, more time, but it has more of a quality of attention brought to all the parts of my life. So there are many, many ways we can deepen our practice. And what we began to look at last time is the use of the tool of reflection, which can be quite powerful. And uh, we looked at how reflection itself can be one way of deepening. It's a kind of remembering of um, our deeper aspirations. And we could say that it really works on two levels, these reflections, which we 
looked at. It's really a reflection of what do I want, what are my deeper aspirations, and sometimes that's sparked by looking at particular subject matter, asking, am I living the way I want to be living? Or looking at the touching in on the reality of that I will die, remembering death, remembering impermanence, and so forth. Um, and uh, those reflections can help us sometimes to have a, more of a quality, more energy for our practice. They can, in a sense, spark a fire in us, more of a fire that gives us more energy. Or they can really have our sense of intention or aspiration be more present during the day. We can simply remember, oh, this is important to me. And ultimately, it comes down to being present more often. You know, if we could be present and aware and mindful and come out of a good heart all the time, we probably wouldn't need further reflections. <laughs> you know? uh, but because a lot of this is just coming to continually come back to be present, aware, and invite mindfulness and the good heart to be there. Um, so the reflections are very helpful when we need some energy to remember to be present, which is the case for 99.8% of us. And the point, whatever, uh, the 0.2% of the people, um, I don't know who they are. <laughs> so, for all intents and purposes, all of us. Uh, so it really is, is as, as we often say, the difficulty of practice is not practicing. In other words, not being mindful, not opening our hearts, or not be, having as open a heart as we can. That's not so difficult. What's more difficult is remembering to be mindful, or remembering to say, let me be with my heart. That in a, I mean, there are other challenges, but in a sense, it's way more difficult to remember to be mindful and have an open heart. So the reflections could be seen, really, as helping us to remember, continual remembering. The reflection that I focused on last time comes particularly from the Tibetan tradition. And I mentioned how reflections are used in so many different traditions as ways to help us remember. Uh, I talked about how in Western uh, philosophical and theological traditions, there is the invitation simply to examine uh, our lives more carefully, to take a moral or spiritual inventory. Uh, I talked about how Plato said the unexamined life is not worth living. Strong statement, 2,500 years ago. And I mentioned how there are different reflections in Buddhist tradition. We focused, and I'll continue to focus, on one that comes from the Tibetan tradition, sometimes called the Four Reminders or the Four uh, Mind Turnings, the Four Reflections which turn the mind towards spiritual practice or towards the Dharma, or oh, it's sometimes said, the Four Reflections which turn the mind away from uh, what's called samsara, which is more the cycle of confused life which leads to suffering. So how can we, basically, how can we turn to the aspiration to have more insight, more freedom, more, more heart in our lives? So these, these are the four reflections. And I wanted to mention those four reflections again. Last time we covered the first two. This time we'll focus on the, the latter two. The four are these. It's to reflect on the preciousness and rarity of a human life, first. Secondly, to reflect on impermanence and the fact of death. And these are not to be done in a sort of a morbid way, but in a way that is uh, used as a skillful means to help us remember, to give us energy uh, for practice, to touch or touch, uh, help us touch our deeper aspirations. So the second is to reflect on impermanence and, and death. The third is to know that every 
moment of experience matters and leaves an imprint on the future. This is traditionally the area uh, related to karma. But we could say it in more um, neutral language to say that every moment of our experience matters, every thought, emotion, and action, particularly when done with consciousness, tends to uh, increase the likelihood that similar states will occur in the future. And then the last is uh, to know the reality of suffering. To know that when we are deluded and confused and caught in habitual patterns, there is, tends to be suffering. And we uh, need, in a way, to tune in on that, to tune in to that, to know that it's not a great way to be. So those are the four. So what I'd like to do is review very briefly the first two and then move on to the latter two um, this morning. So the preciousness of the human life, we talked about that uh, powerful metaphor which comes in Buddhist tradition of, of reminding us that it actually is not so easy to be born a human being. And we often take our lives for granted in a certain way, but that actually uh, in the traditional cosmology, it's somewhat rare. There's this grand cosmology which has continual rebirth of all beings and includes our being as the, the, the current manifestation in a long cycle, which may have had us in our last incarnation be a cow, then you know, we could, if we... You know, if we uh, don't do so well, we could become a, a spider or, a, you, know, you know, potentially a microbe, you know. And there's this, you know, whatever we make of this, there's this, there's this understanding that it's, um, um, it's very special to be a human being. And we can have that understanding whether or not we find the traditional cosmology helpful we can think that, oh, to be alive, to have reasonably good health, to have my faculties intact, makes it possible to realize deep and precious qualities in myself and to connect with others, to, to gain wisdom, to be alive to the wonder of life, to awaken to beauty, to manifest my gifts, that this is very precious. And that would be probably a more contemporary and even secular way of saying the same thing. It's really to appreciate the preciousness of human life, not to take it for granted, and not to, um, not to get caught in habitual patterns which make us forget the preciousness and the rarity and the potential, really. A lot of this reflection is also to remember the potential that's there in being a human being. Some of it might be to reflect with gratitude on the fact that I am in a place where I can open and see my life as a deepening of wisdom, compassion, sense of beauty, service, interconnection. And in a lot of places and times in the history of the human species, though that kind of uh, development is not so accessible, not so possible. We may have, you know, we know in many parts of the world there are people in war-torn countries where their main thought is just survival. We know places where there's a lack of, of religious freedom, a lack of intellectual freedom, a lack of spiritual freedom. And we can really appreciate the opportunities that we have you know, we can know that um, 50 years ago, there was no spirit rock. 20 years ago, there, was no, there were no buildings here. You couldn't come and listen to a Wednesday morning Dharma talk. You know, you couldn't, we couldn't have, we don't have the same resources. So it's really to invite us to reflect on that, sometimes with gratitude. And I think the implication is, to make the most of it, not to take it for granted, not even to take for granted that the conditions will be present in five years or ten years. You know, so it's to really invite us to make use of the resources 
in the moment as best we can or to ask ourselves, am I assuming that I'll just be able to put this off and, de- and you know, cultivate these wonderful qualities more fully later when I'm retired or when I've dealt with this or, or so forth. The second reflection is on impermanence and death. And it's to tune in to the fact of things changing. And it can also be related to the, the, the first reflection about preciousness. We can know that the social conditions, the economic conditions, the ecological conditions can change. We don't know the way things will be in 10 years. It would be nice to have a sense of stability in our world, but we don't really. You know, it actually can be the basis for some um, anxiety at times, but also can be the basis for us to take advantage of the present moment. Um, so there, there's impermanence outwardly. There's, there's the fact of impermanence um, in, our, in our individual lives and to, to be able to study impermanence outwardly and know that things are always changing and I won't, and the conditions will be continually changing. Um, that there's uh, uh, a change in, in our abilities maybe to practice. There can, there, there's the aging process and so forth. And so it's really an invitation to look carefully at impermanence. And last time we did a simple reflection of can you just uh, stay with your present experience for a minute just tuning in to the way that sensations and thoughts are continually in flux. Just to tune into impermanence like that can be helpful. Or to be with nature and just reflect on impermanence. Uh, there's some wonderful passages in the Tibetan tradition. They, they emphasize that sense of impermanence. And this is from the Buddha. He says, of all footprints, the elephants are outstanding. Just so of all subjects of meditation, for a follower of the Buddhas, the idea of impermanence is unsurpassed. To really look at impermanence. A Tibetan teacher says, if you want to use a single Dharma practice, to meditate on impermanence is the most important. It's taken to be not just uh, an obvious intellectual um, fact, but to be something that we really need to study and notice, to really look carefully. And one of the areas that brings that out very much is the area of uh, contemplating death, you know, contemplating because what we really notice with impermanence is that everything is arising and passing. You know, and the purpose of reflection on impermanence is to notice how everything is arising and passing and to loosen our sense that this is going to stay forever or, more directly, that I will gain happiness by attaching my fate to an impermanent object or person or state of affairs. So the reflection on impermanence is to notice how everything is arising and passing, and it could lead to the reflection, am I grabbing hold of something in my life and thinking that this will last forever? Yeah this relationship that, and I gain some kind of security. It's to be honest and sober in a way about the fact that everything is arising and passing and to be open to that, to see, to see that. I, I remember when um, I had surgery about 20 years ago to uh, realign my uh, jaws. I think I've probably talked about this once or twice. I, I was born with uh, my mother's upper jaw and my father's lower jaw in terms of teeth alignment, you know, or vice versa. We don't, we didn't quite know. And um, this led to um, basically a bad bite. And you know, one of my main links with mortality is through my teeth. And so I had orthodonture, my almost my entire teen years, which was brutal. You know, to be a teenager with braces is probably deserves mention if Dante was going to update his, <laughs> his, his levels of hell to be a teenager with braces. <laughs> Fits somewhere on that, you know, an updated version would say that is a level of hell. 
Uh, and it wasn't so much fun and, you know, self-conscious and the whole show, you know. So, um, and it, what was worse was the braces didn't do anything. So I had to have braces again as an adult, you know, which was, you know, what, I wasn't quite so self-conscious. It wasn't such a big deal, but it was expensive, my, you know, and I had to have uh, surgery. And, the, you know, I had worked, I remember I had worked for seven or eight years and, you know, half of my savings got wiped out just by the fact of having to have braces and surgery, you know, so. Um, um, and then I had the surgery and it was quite intense. It was um, essentially I had general anesthesia. They broke my jaws and realigned them. And uh, I had talked with a friend named Jean Achterberg. Some of you may know her. She was a friend and colleague who's written a few books. On, she wrote a book on women and healing and she did a lot of research on using imagery with people with cancer. She, you know, and, and was the I think still is the lead editor for the journal on alternative and complementary medicine. So she works in that area. And we were talking, she had had the same surgery, and we were talking about how in general anesthesia, it's actually very close to a, um, uh, very close to death actually. Doctors don't quite tell us that, but, but she was saying that to be under general anesthesia is close to death. And my experience was of probably the breaking of my jaws coupled with general anesthesia, left me when I woke up in an altered state for 10 days where I was very tuned into impermanence. <laughs> and I was noticing it and I remember waking up and it was alternately incredibly moving and very scary. You know, I remember there being a, quite a bit of fear. The fear would alternate with wonder. It was quite interesting. And I remember especially tuning in to how everything was impermanent. You know, I had just had an experience where I could, in a sense, feel my body as an impermanent, but I also could feel how um, even mugs that were on my table, I looked at them, I said, poor mugs. There's a certain level of tuning in to impermanence and sensitivity. I looked at the mug and said, that's going to break someday. And really sat with that, and um, very interesting, you know, to reflect. And and we can actually reflect like that. We can look at big things and small things, trees and mugs, and look at it in the framework of arising and passing. And of course, the reflection on death invites us to look at ourselves as arising and passing phenomena as well, which is pretty close to home. And so that's been always been a major source uh, of um, um, energy, really, sometimes to say, I will die, I don't know when or how, and let me look at that. It's, taken, it's been taken to be something that we need to be aware of in order to really ask, how should I live? How do I want to live? And that reflection on death, very, 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 very crucial. And to look, to look more carefully um, at death, to keep death in sight, to look at it. So traditionally, meditators were asked to often to sit by corpses or to sit, by, uh, sit in a charnel ground or to go into the territory of death. Now it might be to work in hospice or to simply reflect on death in some way in the Carlos Castaneda books, uh, Don Juan advised Carlos, the, um, you know, the young anthropologist who was studying to be a shaman, he said, keep death over your left shoulder. Imagine that death is looking in at you over your left shoulder and have that be a, a continual awareness. This will help you to become a better shaman, help you to go more deeply. You know, and I was, I was also remembering this morning, I was remembering an experience I had when I was 20, which really had a big effect on me. I was, um, I was in college and I was, um, I was studying a lot of film at the time. I w I was, film was one of the areas, main areas that I studied in college and both the history of film and also filmmaking. And I remember we, uh, I studied a lot of what was then called experimental film and 
we had a visit by one of the great experimental filmmakers named Stan Brackage. And he had a new film, which was a three-hour uh, film of an autopsy. Uh, quite a, you know, to sit with that was to go into the area of, of death. And I remember the audience was filled. I think they didn't exactly know what they were getting into, but they were interested in this famous filmmaker. And he came, and it was a three-hour film on, aut on an autopsy. Within half an hour, half the audience had left. <laughs> I decided to stick it out. I stayed for three hours and watched it, and it was quite an experience. I could, you know, it, it probably was not all that different from being at a real autopsy because it was very, just a film, just a camera sitting with what was happening. But I could watch my perception changing over time. I could watch all the emotional buildup and energy and fear and anxiety. And at a certain point, something shifted, and I was more just seeing forms and colors and movements, you know, seeing in a different way, which took some of the mystery out of, um, out of the process of death. I could, see the, I could see something in a different way. And it was very, very interesting because it, was, it really took me into all the assumptions, fears, models that I had. And I think the, the, probably the traditional meditations would go through some of the same territory when they ask you to sit in eternal ground. You know, where I remember once, again, when I was in my 20s, I was living out in the country, um, and a sheep uh, somehow died and was in the creek. And I remember just sitting and being with the corpse for a while. And it was, it was a, you know, the smell was pretty bad, but it's quite intense to do that. Very interesting, you know, sort of a, and so this is, this is a traditional invitation to just reflect on death in whatever way, maybe be, be with it a little bit more. To, see, to just to know that death is real. Because, you know, we're in a culture which ev even with the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and many others made dramatic, dramatic changes, but we still in many ways deny the reality of death. There's a lot of denial and putting it somewhere else and not wanting to be present with it. The third reflection, as if the first two weren't enough, <laughs> 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 the, third, the third reflection is to know that every moment matters. That every moment that of our lives, as it were, has an imprint, has an effect. In other words, that our lives follow the general principle of cause and effect. That's a, again, a, as it were, non-Buddhist way of talking about the concept of karma, which this third um, reflection is about. And I'll come back to karma in, in a while. Uh, the traditional understanding of this, uh, in the, for example, in the Tibetan tradition, is pretty simple. It's to say, it's to know that uh, that our actions do have effects, that cause and effect is real, and to look at our unskillful actions and abandon them and develop our positive actions. So it's quite simple. It's, it's actually very close to the traditional account by the Buddha about what uh, wise effort means, which is basically to... Um, um, look at our bad habits and not follow them so much and look at our good habits and keep them going and developing them more. That's all. It's pretty simple. And so it's to say, but it's to how do you do that on a moment-to-moment -moment basis? So partly this is to say that we are um, active agents and that our actions matter. We're not completely conditioned and determined. You know, it's basically to say that we have freedom, that every, uh, every action that we take, every thought that we take, uh, every thought that we have takes us in a certain direction. 
This is from the Buddha. He says, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So that's to know that. That which we dwell on a lot, we, ta- we strengthen. That which we don't do so much will tend to get weaker. It's very, very simple. But it's to know that every moment therefore matters. Um, that we, and that we can um, choose to follow what brings about the better qualities, as it were, of wisdom, compassion, generosity, kindness, patience, service, and so forth. We can strengthen those qualities and we can look to to what extent are my thoughts just keeping me caught in distraction? Do I want to follow those? And again, it's not to be heavy-handed and moralistic and beat ourselves up for this, but it's really somehow to come from a more even approach. And that's that in itself is not so easy, you know, because we are, as it were, our super egos or our judgmental minds may tend to take all of these reflections over and be a little brutal towards us and say, you're just hopeless or in our worst moments, let's say, in our, on, our, on our bad hair days, we, we will go there. And, but it's really to say that, that there's a basic freedom and that every moment, in every moment, we can act with freedom. So ultimately, it's actually the very positive aspect of this is that it doesn't really matter what's happened in the past. The past will have an impact, but in every moment, there's a moment to act wisely in the present. So we can have screwed up, and we can always begin again. We can have had a hard past, a difficult past, and there's the freedom in the moment to work skillfully with whatever's there. So in that sense, it's very hopeful. You know, and one, one of the aspects of this that's always been most inspiring to me is to see people who have had hard lives, certain kinds of suffering, and have said, I am not going to let this determine the rest of my lives, my, my life. You know, I was thinking of one friend, very difficult childhood, young adulthood, and very gifted person who might have been, you know, um, had really, you know, a gifted person intellectually, might have been a professor at an elite university, had a lot of difficulties. And this person um, would have the voice come in uh, his mind because of the past, I'm just not, it's not going to work. And I would have that voice come and say, no. I am going to not follow that voice. I am going to choose to keep on developing. You know, or I think sometimes of um, the films of the civil rights movement from the the 60s where I see elderly African-American men and women who've had very hard lives in a certain way and they come out of that and they basically affirm their dignity and refuse to let the weight of oppression take them into despair or bitterness, you know, through a lot of resources. But that is really, to me, those, that's an expression of the freedom which can be inspired by this reflection. That because of cause and effect, my, my actions matter, but I also have a freedom. And that even if I've done something unskillful or unwise, I can act wisely in the present moment. And so what I love In Buddhist tradition, there are a lot of stories of people who really, really screwed up, who become basically saints, who screwed up way more than any of us are going to screw up. Screw up is one of those Buddhist technical terms I like to (laughs) quote from time to time. Um, But, you know, there's the figure in the teachings of the Buddha about Angulimala, a serial killer who has killed hundreds of people. Anguli, mala, means um, basically, a f- a mala, you know, is like the kind of a necklace or a, a, brace, a bracelet, right, that, that you can get in the Spirit Rock bookstore. And anguli means basically fingers. He had, a, he had a garland or a mala of fingers from all of his victims. And 
the Buddha was going to be his thousandth victim, which would complete his life of murder, basically. But it didn't work with the Buddha. Buddha, he tried to run after the Buddha, and the Buddha, through some kind of psychic ability, walked at a normal pace, but couldn't be caught. And he said, stop. And the Buddha said, I have stopped. Perhaps it is now time for you to stop. And then, you know, the thunder came, and the <laughs> petals came from the sky. And, <laughs> and Angulimala said, okay, I'll have to rest content with 999 victims. And um, he stopped, and he became, uh, he totally changed his ways, and he became a fully enlightened being. You know, it's a different approach to um, crime and punishment than we have in our culture. You know, uh, and there are other figures like that. So it's like every, um, no matter what one's done, it's possibility to, it's possible to really change and come back to <clears throat> uh, do one's best in the moment. It's very, very hopeful in that way. You can always start again. There's a tremendous measure of uh, what of uh, grace and promise and ability to start freshly. But it's also that every moment matters. The small stuff matters. There are a lot of passages in the text where it says, don't think that the small things don't matter. They do. You know? And be very careful about your actions. And so this is not, this is, as I mentioned, this is an expression of uh, karma. Uh, and sometimes we have a lot of misunderstandings of karma, so I just wanted to say a brief word about that. The deepest interpretation of karma that we find in the classical texts is that karma has to do with the intention for a given action. You know, in, in, the, in the text, Buddha says, um, it is intention that I call karma. For having intended, one performs an action through body, speech, and mind. So he's really saying, be careful about your intentions. Study your intentions. Your intentions tend to produce action. So know what they are. You know, and it's only, uh, it's really the intention that has the center of gravity when we're studying actions and consequences. So it's not so much a, a mystical calculus of fate or the idea that because I, um, you know, because I said something nasty to my friend yesterday, today someone says something nasty to me. You know, it's not, or it's not some idea that yesterday I stepped on an ant, today I got stung by a wasp. You know, it's really more the idea that every time we intend, we're basically strengthening a tendency. If I intend and then act on being nasty, I strengthen nastiness. If I intend and then act on being open, I strengthen openness. Basically, karma is about the fact that whatever we do, especially with the intentions, that will tend to become a kind of habit. And there are good habits and bad habits. And it's pretty much as simple as that. Every moment, I'm strengthening some tendency. And so the invitation is strengthen the good ones. And be aware that every moment, there's a choice, and every moment we are strengthening a particular habit, good or bad. And so concretely, we can look very carefully at our intentions. We can study them. Look at your intentions before doing something, before having a conversation. Study the intentions that are there. Sometimes they're beneath the surface. In your meditation practice, in our meditation practice, we can um, be in touch with our deeper intentions every day. Ask what I want. Clarify intentions before a particular meeting or activity or gathering or meal or whatever. Continually to uh, ask, what's my intention right now? can be a very a powerful way of uh, developing this practice. And then the fourth reflection, which I'll have to be a little bit brief on because of time, is to reflect that suffering is not fun. That's my own phrasing. <laughs> but to actually know 
that there is suffering and to tune into it. The classical expression of this is to reflect on the defects of samsara and the misery of samsara. Samsara is a word that has to do with the circular tendencies of being caught in bad habits. And in some of the classical teachings of the Buddha, some of you may know the teaching of dependent arising, is a model of how suffering and the continued genesis of suffering can be understood as a circular model in which we keep certain tendencies going. Basically, that when I have ignorance and when I grasp on in a compulsive way to something or push away something compulsively without awareness, I strengthen those tendencies and I strengthen ignorance and it just keeps on going. Another way to say it is when I follow an action out of confusion and habitual tendencies, maybe out of greed or out of confusion or out of unconscious aversion, I further those tendencies and it all is connected with suffering and it has a circular rhythm, a circular logic. It's basically what we would call a vicious circle. And that to break out of that, we have to break that circle. So samsara is understood as this circle in which we are, in a way, locked in suffering. And so it's helpful to really study suffering. I think it's very, this isn't usually what we think we want to do in our practice, but I think it's very helpful when we're actually suffering to bring up mindfulness and say, let me study it. We can start with smaller stuff. You know, I've overeaten, right? I've overeaten just now. My stomach doesn't feel good. My body doesn't feel good. Bring up mindfulness. It's much more likely, if you're really mindful of that, that you won't do it next time. If you try to distract yourself, you're more likely to do it. So moments of suffering, large or small, study them. See what they're like. Not to be distracted from, from our suffering. You know, to... Um, for me to really look openly at suffering and its causes, to see, to see what's, what's there. Um, I remember when I first came to California, there was so much beauty here. I remember having experience of crossing the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge and being amazed by the beauty and saying, <coughs> how can anyone possibly <coughs> suffer in, in this part of California? <laughs> And I, I, it was really mystified me for quite a while. And then, you know, then, then I got it. <laughs> you know, that, that, that only goes so far. So it's really an invitation to see the roots of suffering. You know, some of them are connected with this quality of not fully seeing impermanence, of thinking that our happiness will be found in grabbing hold of that which is impermanent, or that our happiness will be uh, fully lasting and permanent by grabbing hold of something and keeping it, whether it's a house, a job, a relationship, a meal, an evening, a meditation. And the teaching is partly to explore what is the nature of suffering and what is the nature of freedom. Where does my deeper freedom come from? And the teaching is that the deeper freedom and understanding and happiness doesn't come from grabbing hold of things. That it's more a state of being, a quality of peace and understanding. And that's certainly not to say that things and relationships and jobs can't, uh, they can be very, very helpful. It's just that the satisfaction isn't ultimate in a way. It's really asking, where does my deeper happiness come from? Where does my deeper satisfaction come from? And it's really to say not to be satisfied with the smaller stuff or even the medium level stuff. You know, there's, there's a beautiful passage from the Nobel Prize winner George Wald, who was a biologist. And he says, he says that the real, <clears throat> the real aim of life isn't to win Nobel Prizes, but to find love. He says this, what one really needs is not the Nobel laureate, but love. 
How do you think one gets to be a Nobel laureate? Wanting love, that's how. Wanting it so bad one works all the time and ends up a Nobel laureate. It's a consolation prize. What matters is love. Interesting, huh? So it's to really ask, what really satisfies me? How much am I satisfied by something less than this deep peace and understanding? And so, and how much when I grab hold of this, what I'm calling the smaller stuff or the immediate level stuff, is that connected with suffering? And so it's to look at, to look at suffering, to look at to what extent am I bound by what in India are called the golden chains. I can have golden chains. I can have a wonderful life with this in place and that in place, coming to Spirit Rock, retreats, wonderful. Some of my um, teaching colleagues sometimes um, give check-ins when we have meetings. And they say, and they say, how are you doing? They say, high level samsara. <laughs> Interesting comment, right? Which means on an outer level, things are going really, really well, but they see that it's actually not what they most deeply want. It's interesting, isn't it? So we can reflect on that. And all of this is inviting us to touch the deeper aspirations. As I mentioned last time, sometimes those deeper aspirations get covered over. We may feel them at moments, but in daily life they get a little covered over. And what these reflections are doing is they're wanting to give more energy and place for what's deeper in us. And give more encouragement, really. And to know that this can take time. You know that, again, all we, I think all we are really asked to do is moment to moment make the wisest choices we can. That's really it, moment to moment. But this is encouragement to say, also reflect in these four areas, in the area of looking at the preciousness and rarity and potential of a human life, looking at, secondly, impermanence and death in certain ways, looking at the fact that actions have the results, and then really asking, what do I really want? And let me really know that when I'm essentially, unless I'm very highly developed in wisdom and compassion and understanding, I'm going to be caught to some extent in suffering. And I want to tune into that and ask, do I really want to keep cycles of suffering going? Is that really what I want? So there's this way that this can encourage those deeper aspirations to have, to basically say, let's have more of you. <laughs> give more room, you know, and, and to give more, more place. So I think I'll close just with a poem that in a way uh, says something very similar to this, this, but it's from Rilke. So it's from a different uh, epoch. It's not from Tibet, but from the 20th century. First part of the 20th century, actually. And it's really about this quality of touching into those deeper aspirations. You see, he says, you see, I want a lot. Maybe I want it all. The darkness of each endless fall, the shimmering light of each ascent. So many are alive who don't seem to care. Casual, easy, they move in the world as though untouched. But you take pleasure in the faces of those who know they thirst. You cherish those who grip you for survival. You are not dead yet. It's not too late to open your depths by plunging into them and drink in the life that reveals itself quietly there. You are not dead yet. It's not too late to open your depths by plunging into them and drink in the life that reveals itself quietly there. Let's just sit for a moment.
we have a little bit of time, not, not a whole lot, but a little bit of time if there are any reflections or questions. Um, please, Naomi, and then, well, yeah. Um, I continually am perplexed by the different ways we use the word suffering. Yeah. Uh, and what we mean in the teaching, yeah. the Buddhist teaching. Because there is the sufferings, and we, we talk about it, brought on by war and earthquake and destruction and um, cancer and the sufferings of life. Yeah. And then there's the sufferings of grasping. Yeah. And our hearts open to suffering the, what I call the real sufferings, yeah. or the, you know, not the second dagger, but yeah. the real sufferings. Yeah. Yet I think there's something confusing in the teachings. Yeah. And, and even what you were talking about today, to become aware of suffering, we're not just talking about the suffering of grasping. Yeah. Um, everyone hear the question? I'll, maybe I'll repeat it. It's a great one. It's something I've reflected on a lot myself. Um, it's a question about, is there some confusion in the teachings in which there maybe are multiple meanings of the term suffering? Some of them referring to essentially very difficult or difficult life circumstances, and some of them referring to the result of grasping or uh, we might say of compulsive pushing away. And I think that that's true. I have also reflected that there are um, two meanings uh, of suffering at least. And you know, I, I've thought about that partly in the context of uh, um, social justice. For, you know, for example, if, um, if there is injustice, uh, that's a kind of suffering, but if the main response is to give up grasping, well, why would one even want to do any social action? Why wouldn't you just have individual, a bunch of individuals work with their compulsive aversion towards their oppressors, which go, kind of definitely, <laughs> definitely goes against the Western social justice tradition. Um, but 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 you can you can see how that two meanings of suffering bring it up. Or if I'm and I, I think in the text, I think that it's used in different ways. So I think you're correct to say that there are different meanings and it can be confusing. I tend to work that out in this way, that I tend to use the text that I like to give here that I've given multiple times this when, these Wednesday mornings, the teaching of the two arrows. You know, in, in which I would basically distinguish between pain and suffering and say that the pain is the experience of the unpleasant. And that can be there because of disease, because of death, because of un injustice and so forth. And um, so, so I think in that particular text, I think there is a justification for distinguishing two meanings of suffering, and even I prefer to, to use different words and to say that there's pain on the one hand and then reserve the word suffering to what the Buddha said was the second arrow, which is the reactivity because of the first arrow. The first arrow is the pain, which can be there for all sorts of reasons, and the second arrow is the reaction to the pain, you know, the reaction to disease, the reaction to death, the reaction to injustice. The teaching there is that the first arrow and pain is inevitable, but it's an option and we can learn not to shoot the second arrow. We can learn to have these qualities occur without being reactive. So, but I have to say that the, that the words in the text are actually used, they're not used in such a neat way. That's how I, that's how I tend to interpret them. And that when we interpret in that way, uh, things are a little clearer and less confused. And we can say that people, because of strong, unpleasant experiences, tend uh, to have a lot of suffering. You know, that certain things are just harder for us, right? 
or that because there's social injustice, we call that the first arrow, people tend to be reactive and suffer and have awful experiences. That, but that is the second arrow. Theoretically, there, you know, and actually, in fact, we know that some people can be with very awful diseases and not add the second arrow very much. Mm-hmm. You know, we, that, that occurs at times. And we have the example of a lot of the great teachers whose lives are like that. You know, you have death stories of Zen teachers who you see a lot of stories like that. For, and also um, the fact that um, I think we have the pain doesn't mean that we don't respond to it. It doesn't mean we're just passive. You know, we can respond skillfully. But I think that when you actually look to the text the word, and, you, and you read them, the word suffering is used to describe a lot, all of it. You know, and that, that is rightfully confusing. So I think um, you know, my way is to actually make a distinction, which <coughs> does come from the text themselves. But I think he, you know, it's the problem I think of. You know, you have the Buddha gave what you know, thousands of discourses over 45 years, and um, he was talking to different audiences, you know, and not all the, <clears throat> you know, all the fine points aren't always um, brought into order. But I think that's that's how I've made sense of, of that issue. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I I have a lot that I could respond <coughs> to. Yeah, I think it's a very deep discussion. Yeah, because even in the in the noble truths, there is suffering, and there there is an endless suffering. Yeah, but we all know that there is no end to a certain kind of suffering. Right, we and don't have control. Over right, it. and if we make the distinction that I just made, yeah. it, that that teaching makes sense. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. You know, when we, when we just see suffering involves all the pains of life. And then the Buddha says there's an end to suffering. Well, what does that mean? Because yeah. the Buddha in his late life, he had a bad back, he sometimes got headaches. That was pain. You know, that was suffering in the way he often talks about otherwise. But presumably, he didn't have suffering in that sense of the second arrow. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we talk about an end to suffering, to me that only makes sense if we talk about it as reactivity to the unpleasant. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. So it is, it is a deep discussion. Um, I think I'm going to honor the fact you raised your hand and have this be the last question, if you would like, and then, and then, um, then, we'll, then we'll go. I was confused about your discussion of karma yeah. and um, talking about how it has to do with intention and if you have a certain intention and that's what it's sort of a habit and that's sort of what karma is. Yeah. I thought I was I thought it was more like what for example your friend who could have been a professor but because of his background wasn't sort of like the actions of his his family, whatever, they have far reaching effects. Yeah. And that's that's karma. Yeah. And and to, I don't understand how those two jive. Yeah. Yeah, and again this also may not be fully worked out in the text. Um, I think in turn, you know, we have sort of different uh, perspectives. One is the perspective of present-centered practice. What does karma mean in that context? And the other one is a little more metaphysical. How do we, how does, what does karma mean when we look at the vast scope of cause and effect in human life? The first one, I think the Buddha said, is more important. And that is in the context of present-centered experience, which is the only place we can really respond and act. There he said karma means intention. And karma means the fact that how I respond in the present moment has an effect. And that, and that intention is the key to uh, having that effect. So again, there's sometimes a slippage between intention and action. You know, I can intend to be nice with my friend with a difficult discussion and I can get there and meditate and have this strong intention the moment my friend appears at the door. You know, you know, so intention doesn't always translate easily into action, but, but it helps. And, and the, it's the continual intention to be wise, compassionate, kind, to intervene in the moment that's taken to be the locus of our practice. 
In other words, the locus of our practice is not about thinking about the past. It's about responding in the present moment. Now, um, it gets complicated when we look to uh, think about the past and did all this chain of effects, is that my karma? In a certain extent, we can generally say that. But the Buddha was actually um, a little more, what, um, nuanced in talking about that. And he actually, he was once, I'll, I'll end with this, he was once asked a question, are all unpleasant experiences happening in the present moment the result of karma? And he refused to go there. So we can say my karma is what's appearing in the present moment as my experience that I, uh, um, yeah, I, let me take that back. He actually, he, he, you know, so we would say, I have an illness. Is that my karma? The Buddha didn't want to go there. He wanted to say, some of our present experiences are the result of karma, but others are the result of the environment, of biological factors. And, he, and in this particular text, he listed eight factors. And so, you see, if we do otherwise, it gets into the question of, did a three-year-old girl who died in the Holocaust, was that her karma? That gets pretty tricky if you go there. You know, or I have developed a bad illness. Is that my karma? Meaning, by karma, is that the results of my past actions? First of all, it's probably unknowable, and it's also tricky. You know, so uh, the, the, there is that text where the Buddha said, I don't want to go there. And that's, so, and then we can't really know. You know, if we, and, you know, and not all, you know, a lot of people in the West don't particularly think about past lives. So it's a big issue, as we know, in the medical area where people, there's a whole little movement that's been there in the past to blame people for their illnesses. Right? And there's a lot of problems with that. You know, and it gets complicated. So I think the clearest account that he has of karma is more present-centered and related to practice. What can I do in the present moment? You know, and he, he, you know, in the text, there are a lot of passages where he said this was this person's karma. But then there are other passages where he said it's a little bit, he said it, the language he used is overshooting to take your present experience and say, this is the result of my karma. He said, I don't think that's so wise to go there. Interesting. Huh? Yes, but he said, keep, and I would, this is my interpretation, I'll close with this, I would say, keep the focus on the present moment. That's where you can really see the effect. It goes back to that way that our practice needs to be really grounded in what we can know with our direct experience. We can know with our direct experience how my present intentions are connected with what develops later. We can know that and study that. The other stuff's a little, more, a little harder to get at. And in fact, the Buddha said, don't try to figure out your karma, basically, too much. I mean, you can figure out in some ways. You can figure out how did my action yesterday lead to how I'm feeling today. That's a little different, right? But not to go into the realm of the unknown so much. Interesting. So, so we had, I gave a longer talk, and we had the, the two questions at the end were on <laughs> suffering and karma, and I was managed to deal with them in a little, little over 10 minutes. <laughs> so let's just, thanks for your patience and going a little over time. Let's just sit for 30 seconds to finish. So letting what might have been helpful from the morning be present with you. Remembering that a way to practice with these four reflections is simply to think of them, reflect on them, maybe for 10 minutes every day will go a long way. Just in the morning, reflect on these four reflections, the preciousness of a human life, the reality of impermanence and death, the fact that our actions matter, And noticing that to be locked in suffering may not be, is not a good way to live. And that we can choose to honor our deeper aspirations.
to move in a different direction. So just to reflect on those sometimes for 10 minutes and to do it as a daily practice has power. So we remember that we do these practices, these reflections, these inquiries, these gatherings, not just for ourselves, but also for others. And we offer the fruits of the morning to all of us and then beyond the bounds of Spirit Rock out into the world for the benefit of all beings without exception. Thank you so much. And I'll see most of you, or see many of you who come back. I won't see you till July. But uh, I'll miss you and um, take good care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.